Hi, friends, and welcome to the T21 Mom podcast. My name is Mary, and I'll be your host. And this is episode 82. And as always, my good friend and co-host, Ron, is also here with me today. Hey, Mary. How's hey, the Ron. end of summer going? It's going. A few weeks left. Saw so you were at the PE the other day. Yes, we went. Yeah, it was all right. Yeah, little some changes this year. Mm-hmm. I, I haven't been yet. It's unlikely because I got some stuff going on. It's <laughs> unlikely I'll be I'll be heading down. So, and, and it's funny because it's like literally just across the bridge from me. It's close. Right? Yeah. Yeah. It's not like I have to go far. Um, so today we have this really fascinating guest mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. who was as I've been editing the editing the the, the show. I have learned an immense amount about dietary needs and gut health mm-hmm. and so much more. It's convinced me to change my life. Somewhat. That's, that's pretty awesome. Yeah, less pizza. <laughs> yes. Um, but who is our guest today? It's Dr. Vaish Sarathi, and she is a functional nutritionist nutritionist and she actually has her own podcast called functional nutrition for kids links in the show notes yeah we'll link it in the show notes for sure and yeah i found it very enlightening and so full of information and i actually thought it was a great episode to have right after uh dr liz head the one on down syndrome and all Alzheimer's because we did talk a bit about diet in that one and then we get the info on what we can do about our diets in this episode and how it can affect our kids and how it can help our kids like having a good healthy gut and I was just amazed at the amount of information that she has and yeah, I found it just so informative and I'm sure our listeners will be very appreciative of this one as well. Okay, let's dive right in. All right. Today on the T21 Mom podcast, I'm talking with Dr. Vaish Sarathi, who is a functional nutrition practitioner, but also has several degrees under her belt, including a PhD in environmental chemistry. Welcome, Dr. Vaish. I'm so happy to be here. You can call me Vaish. Uh, Happy to be here, Mary. Thank you. Thank you, Vaish. I always feel, you know, that I want to be respectful of people's titles. So, you know, you work hard to achieve it. So, but thank you. (laughs) So before we begin, can you tell us a little bit about you and your family and what motivated you to learn about functional nutrition? Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, like you, I, I, I have a son with um, Down syndrome and autism, a dual diagnosis. He is 15 now. And he's completely non-speaking, has been forever. Uh, all, all, all my motivation for everything that I've, other than my degrees, which are not related to him, but everything <laughs> that I've learned since he was born, um, I would say comes in some way from him. So as um, I also have a daughter, I should mention, she gets mad at me because I don't talk about her at all <laughs> anywhere. But I have a daughter. She is 11. She's neurotypical. Um, and like I said, with my son, his name is Sid, and he, um, you know, his journey has been a little extraordinary as, I mean, I think everybody listening to this podcast would would agree. I mean, as has your journey, as has everybody else's journey. But when you're in the dual diagnosis um, box, if mm-hmm. we may call it a box, it's 
sometimes harder to find help because you know, they're experts in Down syndrome, they're experts in autism, but there's not really experts in <laughs> dual diagnosis. And mm-hmm. you kind of get shuttled from one place to the other. You always find people that are overwhelmed by the by how your child presents because it's 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 overwhelming even to medical practitioners because they've not necessarily met a child like yours. So mm-hmm. and I'm I'm sure you have experienced this too, Mary. So mm-hmm. that's when Sid was young, he um I mean until he was three, he was you know, nothing remarkable happened. You know, he was, he was non-speaking, but, you know, there wasn't anything that we could really point out as anything we were concerned about, except the generally the developmental milestones being met slowly and so on. But as he was getting, as he was about between the ages of four and five, he had, his behavior took a sharp turn for the worse. So where Mm -hmm. he would spend I remember this one period of time I think it was six months where he would laugh for eight to nine hours a day he would just sit in a in a place and he would be maniacally laughing and it, it some days it would be less some days it would be more but it was really hard to see because you could tell that there was this kid who didn't I mean he he wasn't laughing because doctors would tell us that at least he's laughing and not crying it wasn't that kind of laughter <laughs> yeah yeah it was, it was like it was horrifying to see actually because you could see this child completely dysregulated and and unable to sleep, unable to eat. And, you know, his stomach was bloated. He was constipated. He was just a, um, it was just a mess. And somebody mentioned functional nutrition to me, and I'll explain about that in a bit. But, um, and I went to see a couple of nutritionists. I went to see a naturopath. And I was just kind of piecemealing things together. Some things worked, some things didn't work. Um, until I realized that I'm, you know, I'm a chemist and chemistry is not that far away from nutrition. It is different, but mm-hmm. at least you're kind of in the same biology space. I mean, like there's, there's some threads of yeah. connectivity and I thought that I can do this. I mean, it looks like what he has is there for the long haul. So I should probably get trained in this. That's when I got started when he was about five or six as I started learning about nutrition really made the every ounce of difference for him. I think that because he's regulated now, he can spell, he can, fluently communicate he doesn't speak but he can fluently communicate his needs he's on age-appropriate academics everything just the fact that he can function from being a child who was completely dysfunctional like it's it's like he couldn't take one step without collapsing into a heap of laughter he was just so spacey so tuned out um so uncomfortable Mm -hmm. so I that that's where my journey I don't know if I answered your question or went on a tangent but that's where my journey (laughs) to functional nutrition started no, that's uh, no, that's a, a wonderful explanation, and I think can give some real clarity for parents who are possibly like in a similar boat that you were once in about what they can possibly do. And so, and I think that's really fantastic that you've been able to, you know, get him regulated and you know, you know, doing appropriate academics and and so on. So that's I think a huge achievement. I mean, for everyone involved, mm-hmm. you know, there, and I'm sure there's just so much to it and it takes some time. But, you know, I think it's really fantastic for parents to hear that because often it's hard to see the light at the end of a tunnel somewhere. Right. So, yeah, I, I can totally appreciate that. So I know you talked a little bit about functional nutrition and I wanted to talk about like gut health and healthy eating and how diet affects so many things, including learning bodily comfort, our moods, and even cognition. And previously I heard you on 
the Lucky Few podcast talking about functional nutrition. I'd actually had never heard of this before. So can you explain to our listeners what it is and what the benefits are? Yes. And I'm going to give an example that you may have heard if you've heard that podcast, because I find that it speaks into the difference between nutrition and functional nutrition well. So, um, you know, often our children, especially when we're in this space, there's a lot of, uh, you know, failure to thrive growth issues, um, children that are not meeting growth milestones like height mm-hmm. and weight. And when, when you go to a nutritionist or when you seek the help of uh, regular nutrition professionals, generally the point of view is that where are the calories? And usually sometimes we're looking at protein. Ideally, your nutritionist is saying, are they getting enough calories? Put them on a pediasure, put them on some way to get more calories and to get more protein. From a functional nutrition perspective, what I would look at or any functional nutritionist would look at is what's going on with the calories that your child is already eating? Most kids are eating the same calories as your child. If not, why are they not able to eat? So we just go into a few levels deeper. So how's your child's digestion? Let's say um, you're eating a pizza and I'm eating a pizza, but what's that pizza doing in your system? Maybe in your system, it's getting broken down completely in the proteins becoming amino acids, the fats becoming fatty acids, everything and getting absorbed into your bloodstream and you're getting the nutrients if there are any in that pizza. But um, you know, for me, it may be that it's hitting a roadblock right away because I don't have enough stomach acid. So the protein's not getting broken down. Now I'm bloated and um, you know, maybe there's some bacterial overgrowth because the food is just sitting in my small intestine kind of fermenting. Mm. So now um, we could be eating the same thing, but my, my digestion could be impacting how I'm processing that food. And now I could have failure to thrive simply because the nutrients aren't hitting my bloodstream because I'm not digesting it. So that's where functional nutrition comes in to see, okay, it's whatever you're eating is fine, but are you able to digest it? And we look at the systems, um, mostly the digestive system, but also the immune system, you know, the nervous system, everything, how they function together and how your food is supporting or not supporting. Wow. Okay. And how do you know if you're not really digesting the food properly. Like, how would you know if your child's not? Like, I know you mentioned failure to thrive and are there, I guess, obvious signs? I I, I don't know, for lack of a better word. The immediate signs, I think like the number one sign that a functional nutritionist would look for is poop, right? So we want to see like nothing is TMI at that point, right? So it's like uh, how, you know, how often, how's the consistency? Are you straining? So, um, you know, constipation is is honestly like my number one obsession is that mm-hmm. if if your child is constipated, I won't even go anywhere else before, you know, we would work on constipation because um, there are so many things that can get backed up. But yeah, so that's one thing mm-hmm. is that, that would be one indication of whether it's constipation or diarrhea, you want a normal, um, I don't know how much detail I want to go in here, but a normal shaped stool, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, um, at least once a day. So, okay. um, and yeah, one to three times a day would be and without difficulty, without straining, that kind of thing. So that's the number one indicator. So that's the most obvious thing, something that most people can track. Mm-hmm. But beyond that, it can be bloating, it can be acid reflux. So anything that's involved with the digestive tract. So these are um, these are also indicators. And um, an indirect indicator is growth issues. And because then that's showing that your digestion, I mean, especially if you know your child is eating, it seems to be eating okay. But if your child is not eating, okay, that could also be a thing. But why is their appetite low? Maybe they're just not digesting. So why are they not mm. feeling? Maybe there's inflammation. Maybe it's uncomfortable to eat. So 
Remember that the digestive tract isn't just the intestines. It goes from your mouth all the way to the rectum. So anywhere there's inflammation uh, or some things like maybe you're not having enough stomach acid or your enzymes aren't sufficient, anything could stop digestion in the tract. So bad breath, uh, anything, what else am I? All of these are chronic. So one day if you're bloated, that's not a big deal. One day you're constipated. I mean, like, honestly, we don't care. But if this is chronically bad breath, chronic bloating, chronic constipation, chronic diarrhea, that kind of, those are symptoms of poor gut health. Okay. Cause I know, I mean, not my daughter, but I know many of our kids with Down syndrome, they suffer with constipation. So, and I know Absolutely. that, yeah, so many yeah. parents really struggle with that. So, that, so yeah, that's very interesting. I never really thought about it. Like your whole digestive tract is from your mouth to your bum. Like, yep. yeah, uh-huh. I hadn't even thought of it that way. You're right. Yeah. Now, I heard you on your own podcast and we'll talk about that um, later. And you said something that really stuck with me that a child who is a picky eater isn't choosing to be a picky eater. And I know a lot of our, our families really struggle with their kids being picky eaters. Can I mean, my daughter isn't really, but can you talk a little bit about this? Like, you know, like, how, like parents really struggle that their kids only, even without the dual diagnosis, struggle with their mm-hmm. kids only eating very few, few foods. Yeah, um, absolutely. I can talk about that. So um, what, I was, what I was and I am trying to say is when the, we often treat peaky eating as a behavioral issue, as though like, like the word peaky is such an inappropriate mm-hmm. word. And I'll still use it because people understand the term. Right. Nowadays, people are, so now, the people, the kids that we used to call picky eaters who are now grown up and maybe like, you know, a couple of gen, one, a gender, like maybe in their 20s or 30s. Now they're saying that they don't like the term. They like to be called selective eaters or um, self-restricted eaters because they, um, whatever, you know, describes it more as a, not as a behavioral issue, but as mm-hmm. a biochemical issue. So if a child isn't eating, um, this isn't, normal for a child right so it, i mean p- human beings want to eat and we can see through generations that like when i grew up in india and picky eating wasn't even a thing what we used to call picky eating would just be called normal eating in kids these days because those <laughs> days like if you like there weren't kids meals when i was growing up in india there, there's just one standard meal if you went to a restaurant everybody got offered the same thing <laughs> so if somebody actually wanted a specific meal they would be called a picky eater okay. so but the fact that so so that's where I'm trying to say that it's not behavioral. It's not a child choosing to say, no, this is what I'm eat, going to eat, but it's sensory challenges. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it's, it's just sensory overwhelm. A lot of the time it's um, sometimes it's inflammation because if there's major gut inflammation, whether it's in the throat or in the, you know, digest in the intestines, eating is uncomfortable. So maybe, may, un, maybe you're, maybe they're eating inflammatory foods and the food is making it worse or maybe whatever they're eating is making it worse. It mm-hmm. just feels there's pain when they're eating. And kids can't often say that. Um, or even if there's pain after half an hour or one hour, there's just this um, understanding in the nervous system that food is eating food is not a pleasant experience. Mm-hmm. So that it, and so those are things. So it's, um, so we went over sensory issues. We went over inflammation. Mm-hmm. There's also some nutrient deficiencies that can cause because some, some kids can't smell and taste their foods very well. Mm, There's this one okay. boy I knew who would say that um, they, his parents didn't realize until much later that he couldn't smell. And smell and taste go together yeah. very, very, very closely. So 
if you can't smell your food, you probably can't taste your food. Mm-hmm. And then everything is like mud. So why would you? So then those are the kids that seek a lot of texture. So they'll they'll have like cold cereal and milk. So because then you want you want something to explode in your mouth. So you'll have a donut because it's super sweet and you're getting this feedback. Or you'll have like potato chips and that's all you'll eat throughout because at least you know that you're eating something. So those are the common issues. So I mean, I, so that's why I would say that you you want to look one step deeper. What are the kind of foods that my child eats, and um, why is eat? There's also nowadays there's a diagnosis called ARFID, which is, is is on the severe end of picky eating spectrum, which is often associated with trauma. Could be oh. any trauma, but I'll, sometimes it's like for some people it's choking trauma, or mm-hmm. feeling that food is going to do something to them. It could be allergies. It could really be a feeling of choking because some food's causing inflammation in the throat, but it could be a PTSD situation as well. So, um, wow. uh, yeah, I know one of my friends, you know, people keep complimenting her on how much weight she's lost. And she's always like, she never, I mean, she doesn't know what to say to them, but she told me once that she has a severe choking trauma and she just can't eat food. So it's, it's, it's so, so many things mm-hmm. can be picky eating. That's why, that's where the, that's why I say that I think it's really important. So it's okay. So instead of being now I've, I've laid out like 20 factors and I don't want people to be overwhelmed when they <laughs> listen to this. So I'm going to like to really narrow it down and say the first thing you can do is drop this whole behavioral thing. It's, it's 99% not a behavioral issue. It could be, but most likely it's not. The second uh, thing is that um, I would say work on your child's nutrient density. Just make sure things like zinc and magnesium, your child has enough of those and make sure their uh, digestion is okay. And, you know, go on and and try to see if you can move to an anti-inflammatory diet because that often, it's a vicious cycle, but Mm -hmm. it kind of fixes picky eating. When my son was having this dysregulation issue, he used to eat only two foods. He used to eat like whole wheat tortillas that we cooked at home. So it was organic, home cooked, all of that. And he used to have a, a milk and yogurt and everything. We thought we were doing great because everything was organic and home cooked, but that was all that he would eat back and forth and back and forth. In the morning, he would have Vitabix with milk, which was still wheat and milk. So three, that's all he had. When we moved to um, like when his diet changed and in that new diet, he was like, we did cold Turkey. Yeah. We, I wouldn't recommend that to others, but that's what <laughs> we did. And <laughs> Um, we removed gluten and dairy completely. He had a really hard time the first two weeks. But after that, his diet diversified like no one's business because na- when you remove foods that are causing inflammation, you'll find that your child can actually eat a lot of variety. Wow. So, yeah. So he actually eats a ton of different so uh, grains and vegetables and textures now that he never used to eat. So being a selective eater... Does it tend to start for whatever reason when they're a baby or is it something that kids kind of tend to grow into, I guess, because of inflammation or how does, like, do you know? Um, I'm not sure that I have a complete answer, but most people that I've seen, I think it gets, it it does start early. So there, it's not like, um, well, at least the kids I've seen, it's not like suddenly they become picky eaters. So it, it starts, but if it's not addressed early, it gets harder to address. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that if your child is older, you shouldn't address it. But if your child is younger, I would say this is the time to address it. Because you're, the patterns and habits get made and you're so used to forming a, eating a certain food again and again. So now you're also breaking 
these loops, these, um, you know, these cycles and habits that are now, you don't want to work with inflammation and habits, right? So that's, um, that's a double thing. So yeah. yes, it, it, it can, it can get worse with age. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I... Sometimes it can get better with age too. So if, if you're, if a, when the parent is, but that I think when usually they're continuously exposed to new foods and when there's the expectation that, okay, you're going to be eating different foods. Sometimes kids grow out of it, but if nothing's done, a lot of times it sometimes gets worse with age. Okay. Yeah. That, that would make sense. So, I mean, we all want our kids to eat a balanced and healthy diet. So, I mean, I'm sure you really struggled with your son eating three, three foods, but for many of our kids and in particular those with the dual diagnosis of down syndrome and autism this can be really challenging as they're so selective in their eating so mm-hmm. what does a parent like what do they do i mean you said you went cold turkey and you don't advise that i i mean so where where do we start um i think if you feel like you can do cold turkey, I don't think there's, it's just, it's just harder. You have to be ready for a couple of weeks of a little bit of withdrawal because a lot of foods that are inflammatory in nature, especially gluten and dairy are actually addictive biochemically. And I'm not just saying addictive, like we use the word very casually and we say mm-hmm. like Netflix is addictive, but even that's biochemically addictive. Never mind. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, but, but gluten and dairy, when they're undigested, they, the, the undigested parts of the proteins, they actually resemble, um, they're called gluteomorphin and caseomorphin. So the they, their word, uh, the name ends in morphine. So they bind to opioid receptors in the brain. So they actually function as opioid drugs. So, um, so they're like morphine. So it's, wow. it's, if your child isn't able to go off gluten, well, of course, because either <laughs> they're not digesting it well. So you're forming these morphine like structures and they're getting addicted to it. So it's not, it's never going to be easy to go off gluten and dairy. There is no child in the mm-hmm. world that has said, yeah, let me go off gluten and dairy and, <laughs> yeah. you know, I'll just go off in one day. If they do that, they're probably, they probably don't need it. Okay. So which means they're digesting it really well and they don't have a problem. So rule number one that I learned when I was doing the rounds of autism and nutrition is that if your child is addicted to a food, the high chances are they need to go off that food because that's how the addiction chemistry works. It's uh, that means uh, just like I gave an example for mm-hmm. gluten and dairy. So it's not going to be easy. You can either go step by step, like, you know, just find foods that they really like and start looking for alternatives, mm-hmm. right? So if it's pizza, start finding pizza crusts that you can make at home that are one of the, you know, one of the steps I'd like to go from gluten is going to sourdough because sourdough is um, genuine sourdough, which means not just the ones that have like vinegar added to make it sour, but the ones that have actually been fermenting, you know, uh, with mm-hmm. yeast cultures, the older, the better. So genuine sourdough, the gluten is naturally broken down by the yeast and bacteria. Most of it is. So it's a lot of people who can't digest gluten can digest sourdough. Oh, so wow. I like that to be the next step. So if you can get a genuine sourdough crust, start there, move, and then slowly move towards gluten-free alternatives. So find, um, even if it's not 100% initially, start mm-hmm. finding alternatives to favorite foods that are there. Bring in new foods that your child will like. So start the shift. At some point, you'll be able to like, you know, when you want to try a gluten-free diet, at some point you want to try it 100%. Maybe it takes three months to get there. Maybe it takes a year to get there. That doesn't matter. 
So it just matters, but it, you're never going to get there if the first step isn't made. So it, it has to be um, at least a little bit. Um, and if you're okay with taking a year to become gluten-free, then who cares? They just, mm-hmm. just find like their top six, seven favorite foods and start moving towards. Nowadays, there's so much. When Sid and I um, uh, became gluten-free, I'm not gluten-free now, but uh, Sid is, continues to be. When, when he was four and a half, five, um, there was nothing. The gluten-free mm-hmm. industry was a mess. Everything tasted like cardboard. Yeah. And so, <laughs> and because we are from, we're South Indian, we, we <laughs> handled it because our food is naturally gluten-free. So wheat isn't a normal part of South Indian cuisine. So we, um, we just made traditional foods and, and that worked. That's also a great thing. If you can expand your child's cuisine to international cuisines, mm-hmm. there are many cuisines that don't use that much um, gluten. Um, and uh, oh, the South wow. Indian cuisine is one of them where there are breads, there are crepes, there's, it's almost 90, 95% gluten-free. So, so, so those are like, you can import recipes from uh, other cultures that mm-hmm. have not traditionally had gluten. So, and if you choose to make Mexican foods, there's corn tortillas and so on. So there's, there's so many options. So oh, um, wow. I think that's the second one is that you can choose your favorite foods and mm-hmm. try to modify the other is just ditch everything and move to like other cultures, right? And see, yeah, like, yeah, so. I know, because I was in the grocery store the other day and I, you know, I, because I thought, oh, I was thinking, because I've been thinking a lot about it. And I go there and I've always noticed it, but like, I really noticed that there are so many options for gluten-free. I mean, like for everything out there, like vegan, keto gluten-free you know so like you said yeah like just even a few years ago there wasn't much and and here where i live in vancouver there's a lot of like when you go out to eat mm-hmm. i think pretty much every restaurant will have a gluten-free option so which is nice are you, you know? in vancouver canada yes yeah yeah huh? yeah yeah so we're not far from each other i'm in portland oregon not terribly far okay yeah, yeah not too far yeah yeah, yeah. A few hours. so yeah um um, yeah, that's true. So uh, Portland is, of course, a, a kind of a bubble in that sense. And maybe Vancouver is too. But Portland is like the, you know, the the place to be if you want to be in any crazy diet, right? So anything that you have, <laughs> the, there's a restaurant for that in Portland. So um, so oftentimes we don't realize that. I mean, it, we're really lucky. But still, yes, there are options everywhere. So walk into any store. Everybody has gluten-free and dairy-free alternatives mm-hmm. these days. You have oat milk which isn't super nutrient dense, but at least it tastes good. Mm-hmm. And which we didn't, um, yeah, a few years ago, it was just soy milk and I didn't want to do that. So definitely we're in a better frame of, uh, we're in a better place. And so my advice would be to start somewhere and keep moving. So just keep moving. And and if it's just one block by one block, just build your road towards, towards going uh, gluten-free. And if you don't want to go, at least start building that road towards an anti-inflammatory diet anyway even if you think that you may never be completely gluten-free some of the things if you're I do advise everybody to try at least a three-month trial of being gluten and dairy-free okay because I have seen it do um, almost most children with um, with Down syndrome and or autism have gut issues uh, with Down with autism we have statistics 60 to 80 percent of kids have gut issues and we know that just through my clinical experience, I know that it's not that a gluten-free, dairy-free diet cures everything or it heals everything. It is just that it it makes it easier for 
us to resolve gut issues. At least it doesn't add fuel to the fire. Mm-hmm. When you're continuously adding gluten, it's such a hard to digest protein that, and this is true for casein from dairy as well. Um, it's just that it makes, it's like cl- fighting an uphill battle. Mm-hmm. Because we're eating food three times a day. Yeah. I, I like to say that food is the single most frequent intervention that uh, our children have. Like, you know, more than therapy, more than anything, you have food <laughs> coming true. in. true, yeah. Not just three, maybe five times a day. Mm-hmm. And if, if you're hitting your body with inflammatory food, and there is no doubt, not just in my mind, but even in literature, that gluten is inflammatory to everybody, but more to people that have a propensity for gut issues. Mm-hmm. And I just feel like then we're not giving our children a fair chance. So a three-month trial is usually good okay. um, to, to know if that'll help. And it's making it, a difference. Um, yeah. Yeah. So I can't remember what I was saying before that, but at any rate, I think that um, um, that that is a great place to start. Okay. Yeah. Cause I was, I know that was one of my questions is like, how long do you give it now with Down syndrome? We're all aware of like hypotonia or low tone. So how does this come into play into digestion and our kids gut health? Because tone, it just affects everything. Yes. The the thing is that the gut is a muscle, right? So mm-hmm. we just talked about the gut being from the mouth to the rectum. And then we have, everything is a muscle. So if you have poor muscle tone, all of these are also going to have pure, poor muscle tone, which is why we often have reflux issues because um, you want your food to be going down in, in waves of motion from your mouth to your rectum. And it is impacted in somebody who has low muscle tone. Remember the the pancreas and the gallbladder that release enzymes and bile, they're also muscles, okay? So mm, everything okay. that's every digestive process is going on by a contraction of some muscle. So if you have muscle tone issues, chances are that you have poor digestion all the way through. And chances are that you should be expecting to support your child's digestion. So, and or at least keeping a very keen eye on how their digestion is. Are they bloated? All those signs that I talked about mm-hmm. earlier, do they have reflux? Are they pooping at least once a day? And so on. And one of the, um, this isn't what you're asking, but one of the indirect signs of gut health is mental health. And I'll talk about that later. Um, But um, coming back to your question, poor muscle tone is not just an external issue where your hands are weak Mm -hmm. or your legs are weak or your face muscles are weak. It starts with the chewing process and can impact every part of you, which is why I don't like to give diets based on diagnosis. I'm, I'm never going to be the one that says that all autistic kids should be gluten-free dairy if you're all Down syndrome kids. But if you suspect your child has low muscle tone, then you should consider an anti-inflammatory diet and see if it makes a difference. Okay. Always n- never go on a diet without a time frame because that, that doesn't help anybody. So first rule of going on any healing diet or infl- anti-inflammatory diet is give yourself two or three months and say, I'm going to reevaluate if it doesn't work, I'm back. You always have a way out. It also helps psychologically because I need a way out in anything I do because I'm, <laughs> that's my like personality type. If I don't have a way out, I'm not good at doing things. Yeah, so. okay. No, that's good to know. Like my daughter, she's really low tone, but she is generally a fairly good eater. But I feel sometimes she has some texture issues, which could be maybe she would have trouble like digesting those foods i'm not sure but i also wonder if she's even chewing her food properly like mm. without getting so graphic like for example like she loves blueberries but in her stool <laughs> i see them so i'm thinking like is she even chewing them 
so and it and because they're supposed to be so good for you but is she even getting any benefits from them that's a good point when we see and whether it's our own stool or our children's stool when we see undigested food that is a sign that either we're not chewing them or there it's like you know it could be there are multiple steps in a digestion that's something to be aware of um that it's not complete digestion is incomplete but definitely I, it looks like chewing may be an issue probably is for most kids and um i think this is where a speech therapist that is uh, good with oral motor mm-hmm. issues because that's not always the case that speech therapists all they don't always work on oral motor but i would say really finding somebody that works on oral motor issues we had to do a lot of work with sid for chewing there were times when he had like he had very poor awareness in his mouth mm-hmm. so you, yeah. like a uh, 1 inch piece of broccoli there were times he would swallow the entire 1 inch piece of broccoli oh and <laughs> or a 1 inch piece of chicken he just like swallow this whole thing and like what's where's that going i mean your body can't digest big pieces like that so um definitely i think working on oral motor is the first step chewing is the first step of digestion so unfortunately that not unfortunately that work is best done by somebody who knows how to bring the awareness to the you okay. know mouth how to use different oral motor tools to you know teach how to chew chew yeah yeah cuz i've i have tried like other vegetables and i've had the same fear as you that i go i don't know like if she's chewing that but i've also seen her like i would try to hide something in the food and she would somehow be able to spit it out and i go i don't know how she manages that but she manages to figure it out in her mouth and she'll eat the rest of the food but she spits out that one piece of whatever it was but yeah because yeah, i've always worried about her for that exact same thing like is she properly chewing the food so and also a lot of our kids they have gi issues which you've already mentioned and they suffer as we talked about constipation have hirschsprung disease or or even g tube fed like so what does a healthy gut mean i mean i think i know the answer like no inflammation but can you have these issues but still have a healthy gut and is there a way to heal your gut and can we create a healthy gut yes absolutely yes to all of those and um you know broadly speaking a healthy gut means that you don't have inflammation you're digesting your food well throughout like you're chewing well your stomach is having enough acid to digest your there's enough enzyme and bile secretion and the food is moving through through your entire system and you're pooping well all of this everything that's supposed to happen is happening regularly efficiently and in the end that you also have good micro i didn't talk about microbial diversity but that you have good gut microbial diversity so yes no matter how you're getting your food in uh, you know so it it um i'm sh- so it is possible to to be in that state at least that's the, at least it's definitely necessary we may not none of us are 100% there mm-hmm. so we should at least aim to be about 80% there so okay. i think i think a lot of the goal in nutrition to me is just aiming to go to a certain place we may never be there completely for me what's functionally good gut health is if with poor gut health it's almost always the case that the child will be dysregulated you might see headaches you might see brain fog you might see um just um uh, brain fog can manifest as complete spaciness it can even manifest as aggression uh, okay. or gut health mm-hmm. or anxiety and so on so if you're not seeing um a child in discomfort either mentally or digestively just just stomach is flat when i say flat i mean not bloated so okay. 
like stomach is not bloated and you know digestion is is good and they you they're pooping regularly for the most part that's where i aim for 80% mm-hmm. and uh, yes it's definitely possible and for healing the gut now i've obviously been going on and on about an anti-inflammatory diet <laughs> but i think one, one of the basic things is is an anti-inflammatory diet and the second thing is um is eating diverse foods so if you just ate you know quinoa and broccoli every day i wouldn't just because that falls under a broad or even if you had like salmon and broccoli every day just because it sounds anti-inflammatory that's that's not that's not ideal you will really want to rotate the vegetables and the um fruits and um if you're doing grains and nuts and seeds you want to rotate them on a daily basis so the bugs in your gut get different foods to eat so you're growing different bugs and you just okay. have a diverse microbiome so diversity is is as important as um making sure that and diversity like i like to say that a pizza and a pasta are not diverse foods they're still wheat cheese and <laughs> tomatoes right right yeah so yeah so diversity not just in texture that's also important because you're chewing more maybe in a pizza and less in a pasta that's important for oral motor health um diversity in texture but also diversity in ingredients which plants your food is coming from and Make so lots of plants and diverse plants my daughter Ainsley like she'll eat raw broccoli and cooked broccoli and she eats cucumber mm-hmm. and i've been trying to and she'll eat cooked carrots uh i'm not sure she'll eat i don't think she'll eat a raw carrot and i've been trying to get her to eat mm-hmm. peppers but like i think it's a texture issue like you know a, a raw carrot it's obviously hard but she'll eat like a an apple but so how do you introduce like different textures do you just i've heard like sometimes you have to introduce a food like 15 times before they kind of get over that hurdle but is there a way for our kids who have these texture issues how to work with it yeah and i think um this i um you know i think in our emails we had this conversation not conversation but you had mentioned about purees also so i'm mm-hmm. going to tie that into kids that are still on purees um i actually had a podcast episode that just got released it's episode number 98 i believe it's with dr k to me mm-hmm. and her last name is t o o m e y and she's the founder have you heard of her she's the founder of sos feeding yeah i actually listened to that one and found it very interesting what she had to say yeah her second uh, so th- that was part 1 i mm-hmm. think the maybe you listened to both The first one is um is just general feeding issues in down syndrome and mm-hmm. part 2 she addresses how to move from purees and so that i mean because i wasn't aware of that until i talked to her is that there is a i actually really recommend that um uh, if you can include that episode in the show notes because For she's sure. given a lot of handouts and she talks about um about a specific continuum of textures to give kids with down syndrome I don't remember all of it it's all in mm-hmm. the episode and I I put all the resources that she gave me in that episode but broadly what I remember is that when when kids that don't have sensory issues when neurotypical kids are eating we often have the luxury of doing things like baby led weaning and we're kind of letting them find their own space through the own path through the food space and figure out what they want to eat and she said that when kids have oral motor challenges and sensory challenges we don't have the luxury of doing that so it's very important um one of the things she says is that 
eating is not a child's first priority. Breathing is their first mm-hmm. priority. And postural stability is their second priority. And I thought that was really mind-blowing because she says mm-hmm. that only when a baby knows that they can breathe, or not even a baby, a child knows that they can breathe and that their head isn't going to fall over or they're not going to fall down, mm-hmm. then eating becomes a priority. And so, as you can see, that eating pureed foods gives a lot of stability to kids who don't have that partial stability or who are not necessarily in a position where they can breathe easily because they're like all wobbly all over the place. So they don't know how to hold their body up. So they're going to take the easiest way out. And if, I guess, if that hasn't, um, if that progression in stability somehow hasn't happened, if the body hasn't and brain haven't processed that, it's now safe to move on because apparently that has to happen in a very specific continuum. Mm-hmm. That's when kids get stuck in eating purees. And you and I probably both know a lot of kids with Down syndrome who are eating purees well into their, you know, uh, 20s and 30s sometimes. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. And of course, it's harder to make changes at that age. But so I asked her if if people can make changes. And then she said that it's it'll it's worth trying it's mm-hmm. now again we're dealing with habits and that becomes harder mm-hmm. and there's a lot more resistance but at least it's it's definitely something that that is worth trying but when you have younger kids i think then you can use this so it's interesting how many factors come in and how many things we have to think about but yeah i know i listened to that and like you i it was kind of mind blowing as well cuz she kept saying mm-hmm. being able to breathe and not fall on your head and yeah. And I thought, yeah, all our kids, well, majority are like, and my daughter in particular, like really low tone. And uh, so I never had thought of it like that, you know, to make sure they're properly supported, can breathe and all of that. It's like, it's more involved than I think a lot of us think, you know, to get our kids to eat, that there's so many other factors, not just the fact that, you know, they might have reflux. I mean, that's a whole other Mm -hmm. issue, but like environmental factors, like sitting properly and, and make sure that it feels, they feel stable. So yeah, I, I found that episode very interesting and yes, we'll definitely uh, link it in the show notes so yeah. that people can listen to it. Cause I think it's so valuable. And I mean, I think it's kind of obvious, but how does like a healthy diet, you know, healthy gut affect like our moods and, and our ability to learn and even cognition. C- can you talk a little bit about that and, Yeah, because I mean, I realize like, you know, obviously eating well and eating the right foods affects so many things. But I, I, Mm -hmm. you know, when I was reading about that, I didn't really think of it to that extent, I guess. In multiple ways, one of the ways, so let's, one of the ways is that you need to be able to absorb nutrients from food. A lot of times we, we tend to think about eating. The fa- suppose our children have just eaten, then we assume that the nutrients have been absorbed. That's not the case. Just because whatever, let's say they're eating um, pasta and broccoli and salmon, that doesn't mean everything from it has entered a child's bloodstream if their digestion isn't working. We know that there's a certain foods that the brain needs to function well. Omega-3 fatty acids mm-hmm. are one of them. Um, you know, and I mean, it's uh, uh, there's some B vitamins that are, really critical in making neurotransmitters and this is where moods come into play because if you are deficient and a lot of kids are deficient in b vitamins it is uh, it has to do with can you break those foods down are you absorbing the nutrients from your food right 
So are you even eating different foods? Are you eating foods with nutrients? Now, when the picky eating cycle gets very vicious, you might be eating the same food and you may become very nutrient deficient. So, mm -hmm. um, so these are two ways. So for just getting, well, actually one way, this is just getting the nutrients to the brain. So that's one way your moods could be impacted. Another way is that this is even more important is that we know that gut inflammation causes neuroinflammation and neuroinflammation causes gut inflammation. This is called the gut brain axis. Okay. It's like a highway yeah. that goes back and forth both ways. So in fact, if you have a traumatic brain injury, mm -hmm. you will have issues with digestion similarly. So, so both ways. Wow. But more okay. often what we're seeing is children with uh, intestinal inflammation, it is going to ca uh, cause gut inflammation. And finally is that if you have bad bacteria and yeast growing in your gut, this is what Sid had when he was laughing. They produce, for example, yeast can uh, produce alcohol and um, other you know, chemicals as metabolites that can make you feel very fuzzy. So it's, mm. you almost behave like an alcoholic. So, uh, yeah, so that's, I mean, that explains the laughter and yeah. things like that. So, so there are, um, like, if you have an overgrowth of bad microbes in your gut, you could, they could be producing things that make, make you feel really weird. So multiple ways in which the gut affects the brain. Um, the gut also produces a lot of neurotransmitters, but um, it's really um, impossible to address mental health issues um, or cognitive issues without really addressing gut health issues. Okay. Wow. I like, it's kind of mind blowing. I mean, I understand it, but it, mm. I didn't, I don't think I really realized how impactful it all is like mm -hmm. you know i i understand the, you know the benefit of healthy eating and a healthy diet but just you know how it's all so intertwined to like just us living like a full life to the best that we can so yeah it's wow and i mean we've all heard of like superfoods or foods that are high in antioxidants but are there foods that are more beneficial for our kids like that, you know, would be, I guess, on the anti-inflammatory diet, so to speak? I mean, anyone can Google that or look that up, but, mm -hmm. you know, any kind of tips, I guess? <laughs> I think that um, I, I think for our kids or other kids, but especially because we're so focused on brain health, I mm -hmm. think making sure that you get foods that are high in omega-3 fatty acids, so cold water fish. Um, uh, so for me, the superfoods are not just foods that are high in antioxidants. So definitely all berries. Okay. So if you, if you could just choose, um, the, I'll tell you what my favorite superfoods are. So berries, mm -hmm. which I try to do as much as possible. I love green tea. So matcha. So Sid, this is one thing that Sid drinks every day in the morning okay. is green tea. So like, uh, and not just green tea, but matcha. So I make it a matcha latte with coconut milk or some other milk. Um, but yeah, so, um, because it um, there's a lot of research um, with green tea and, and yeah. brain health. Mm -hmm. But um, so if I had to keep it short, I would say green tea. So we'll do all the colors, right? Green, orange, and blue. So green tea, salmon, okay. and, and berries maybe. Oh, yeah. okay. Oh, awesome. Yeah. Okay. We'll we'll definitely work on that. We, we I know we definitely need to eat more fish. And I wonder if she would, I guess we could try the matcha with the coconut milk. She might she might like that or I could try it even. Yeah. It looks it, very pretty. So I think visually yeah. it's very appealing. So, but you just have to get over it. Sometimes people, uh, the taste is a little earthy. So mm -hmm. you might want to add some raw honey or just make it uh, definitely add some raw honey. Otherwise it's 
not super tasty without it. But oh, okay, yeah, because yeah. I know like matcha cat like in its pure form can be quite a little bit bitter like it's yeah I, I did tea ceremony in japan like you know uh-huh. and so you know you drink the matcha and it is it's it's different like it's not your typical yeah. tea like what we know it in the west so um and i've i know we've obviously we've talked a lot about it about the uh the mediterranean diet or anti-inflammatory diet are they sort of the same or are they actually different like that i like i've read a lot that this is much better and for our kids than just i guess whatever we're necessarily feeding them but um like are they one and the same the mediterranean diet they don't have to be they don't have to be and the anti-inflammatory diet has some variations on it but um i would say the anti-inflammatory diet is is a is a variation on the mediterranean diet so if and you i think starting with the mediterranean diet is a great way because it's what are the things that we know? So it's very plant-based. Mm-hmm. They use whole grains uh, and then they use a ton of olive oil, extra mm-hmm. virgin olive oil. And so there's a lot of antioxidants in their food. They have fresh, I mean, they, they, they do a decent amount of fish mm-hmm. and um, lots of fruits and vegetables. And they barely really, they don't sit any desserts after every meal. And there's not that much processed grains, but the anti mm-hmm. Mediterranean diet is a very broadly uh, whole grain diet. So I would say when you go beyond that and when you remove gluten and dairy, um, and then um, you kind of up the antioxidant, you make sure that you're eating whole foods and that you are like bringing in more of the antioxidants we talked about, like tipping your plate more from grains to um, vegetables and fruits. And, you know, making sure that the sources, because um, we're not going very deep when we talk about the Mediterranean diet, but making sure you're not, you're, if possible, if affordable, you can eat organic, mm-hmm. especially animal products. Yeah. Um, make it organic, if that is an option. So that it's like a refinement on the Mediterranean diet to remove the few things that um, that may not work for some kids. Right. Okay. Yes. And I've heard that too. It can, it can be a bit expensive, but I yeah. think if you can at least do some as opposed to none, like I think some yes. is better than nothing. So absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And do you think like going the anti-inflammatory route, like for diet, like if you have a child with a dual diagnosis, like is it more beneficial to our kids with the dual diagnosis than just Down syndrome? Or would you say in both camps, like just Down syndrome and the dual diagnosis, would you say benefit greatly from it? I think it depends on how how this, um, what you're trying to address. Mm-hmm. If you have a child with a dis with dysregulation and um, uh, you know focus issues and mood issues and so on, I think that you may be right that it may be more beneficial for a kid with a dual diagnosis because this is often more seen in like when you look at dysregulation and when you look at you know uh, mood swings and when you look at um, focus issues, you see it more in DSASD than you would just see it. In, mm-hmm. I think you're right. So in fact, that's often how we even get to the diagnosis. So, so I think everybody will benefit, but I think if you have a child with a dual diagnosis, I would maybe say that it's something we should probably strongly consider. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, My daughter's not a very picky eater, like I mentioned, but I think Mm -hmm. we could certainly fine tune, like we don't need a lot of processed foods, but I think we definitely, I could definitely be trying to get her on a bit more variety of vegetables because I think that would be beneficial. And yeah, we eat a lot of berries, so, which is good. And so do you think our kids with the dual diagnosis of autism, that they would have more food sensitivities than 
kids with just Down syndrome? I'm not sure about that, actually. I, I haven't actually looked into that. I don't know. I think it's, um, I don't know if gut health is more of an issue in children with dual diagnosis. If that is the case, then yes, but I'm mm. not, I actually don't know if that is the case or not. I would guess, yeah. but that would be very random. I mean, just based, like it would just be an intelligent guess and say that that's probably going to be the case, but I'm not sure. Okay. I kind of yeah. thought that because I, I read about that a lot in the dual diagnosis forums more than yeah. I do in the other groups that uh, mm-hmm. it tr- just trouble with feeding, like just in yeah. general for, you know, very selective foods and no variety. So yeah, that's what, that's kind of what I thought. And I mean, you've talked a lot about like going dairy and, and gluten-free mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, and you did mention about, it probably takes about three months to see like, you know, you got to kind of give it a college, a good college try to sort of see a difference. You can't just do it for a week or two. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, it's great now that there are just so many options. Like, <clears throat> would you suggest like doing both da- dairy and gluten at the same time, like remove or try one and then the other? Definitely both. Um, because there's a saying, but there's this famous uh, functional medicine doctor who kind of started the field for kids, uh, autistic kids. He he's like the, one of the pioneers. His name is Doctor Sid Baker, and he has a famous quote. He says that if you're sitting on two pins or two tacks, removing one tack isn't going to make you feel better. So, um, and a lot of times when when like a gluten free diet isn't working for somebody, it's because you're sitting on multiple tacks. Mm. So just I know this seems like a broad overstatement and people are going to say that I'm really stretching this diet's ability beyond it. But just having seen the number of kids, not just the kids that I work with, but just having seen being on forums uh, on and talking to kids, hundreds of kids and their hundreds of their parents, uh, it just, um, it works to reduce inflammation. Okay, so if you, whether you see results or whether it takes time depends on, how many, what the extent of issues are that are going on with your specific child. But um, most kids need to go at least gluten and dairy free to see. And of course, like I said, give yourself a time. And then if it doesn't work, you can think at that time about, do you feel like there's, there's any tweaking you need to do, or if you feel like you want to come back. Yeah. And would that be for life? Not necessarily depends on the extent of their child's, your child's gut issues. For my son, it is, it, I tried to come back several times, okay? And then within a week, I would see like uh, severe constipation return, mm. bloating return. And just, he's not his normal self. He's just has no energy because my son also has like, you know, he, he also has a diagnosis of cerebral palsy and he just has some mitochondrial issues. He has, he's more complex biochemically. So it just didn't work for us to come back. But at all, for at least the first three or four years of being gluten-free and dairy-free, I was actively resisting because for me, it was an abnormal diet yeah. we needed to come back from to the point where right now, it took me many years. Now it's a value system. So it's just like, it's like, this is how we eat. It's We don't eat foods that are inflammatory to our bodies. My daughter does eat wheat um, and dairy uh, in moderate, low moderation, but she eats it. But for him, it's a value system. So it's, it just has not worked for us to come back. And I know many, many people, kids and adults like that, it doesn't work for them to come back. Again, the more dysregulated your child is, the more likely it is that they may need to stay on this for a longer time. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah, I kind of thought, 
thought that would be your answer, but it's good to know that it's not necessarily for life, but at least give it a try and see how it works. So yeah. what would you say would be your top three things to do to work towards a healthy gut for our kids? Number one would be um, blood sugar balance. So making sure that you're out, you have uh, protein in every meal, you have some fiber, and uh, you're not eating refined sugar. Okay, so I would say that get refined sugar out of your child's diet. If that's the only thing that you can do, even though we haven't talked about it at all today, and I'm just throwing it out. I think you've, most people have heard about it from multiple sources. So I feel comfortable that this is not the first time they're hearing about it. So I would say move to natural sweeteners like maple syrup and raw honey. It's not like you can't eat sweet foods, but there's just really nothing good from white sugar that can come to your child. So yeah. um, that, and second is increased food diversity. So these are things that most people can do right away. So they can mm -hmm. ditch the white sugar and increase food diversity. So let's make a meal plan or something like that. And you can make the same kinds of dishes, but one day you have broccoli, the next day, ne uh, next day you have cauliflower or and, and just keep moving between things, even berries, like one day you have blueberries, the other day you have raspberries, just move, keep moving between, between this. And finally, it's just make sure your child is not constipated. And constipation, we want to try to address it as naturally as possible. I have a free uh, ebook and I can send you the link later. Okay. But it's, it's called the constipation toolkit that for kids with Down syndrome. But you'd really want to make sure that, um, your child is not constipated one way or the other. And I don't mean Miralax, but I mean, I mean, however you can use through diet, through magnesium supplementation, checking their thyroid, whatever it needs to be, hook or crook, your child should not be constipated. Yeah. Yeah, I know so, that's a huge, huge struggle for a lot of our parents. So, yeah. And I know we've kind of touched on a lot of different things, but is there anything else that you would like to add or share? I think that um, one thing I like to say is that nutrition isn't an end goal. You're not reaching anything. The only way that this works is that when we don't get too obsessive about it, but we find a medium that like a medium road that works for us and kind of it becomes a value system of their lifestyle. So you just decide that these, and initially even that may be hard because if your child is used to eating uh, donuts regularly or going to, or having chicken nuggets regularly, making sure that you don't eat uh, in a refined sugar may be a big thing, but but decide, maybe do your research and decide on what you want your value system to be. I mean, food is a value system also. Mm -hmm. And definitely, I, I mean, I don't want anybody going to the far end of being obsessed with what every meal is and only thinking about that. That doesn't do any good either. But, um, but, um, but finding a path that is reasonably anti-inflammatory and sticking to it. Okay. Yeah. No, and I think there's enough options out there now that it it's going to be easier. I'm going to try the gluten and dairy free. I'm kind of scared, but I, I think I can start eliminating, and then maybe we can do cold turkey for three months and see how it how it goes. I mean, Ainsley doesn't suffer from constipation, thankfully, and and like mm -hmm. I said, she seems to be a pretty good eater. But I would like to get a bit more variety in her mm -hmm. diet, so you know, just so that she has choices and it, and then, it, and also, cause it's easier to feed your kids when they are, you know, are not so selective in what they choose to eat. So 
Thank you, Dr. Vaish, for so much for your information. I have found it so beneficial and so full of knowledge that I'm sure like lots of parents will really appreciate and then how we can, you know, better help our kids and, and just the whole importance of gut health. And like we mentioned earlier, like you have your own podcast. So where can people find you? Um, my, my podcast is called Function and Nutrition and Learning for Kids. So I talk about what I call inside out and outside in strategies for learning. So what we talk today would be inside out. Outside in would just be learning strategies that come. How do you teach math and science to your child? That kind of stuff. Um, so that um, anywhere, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you're listening to your podcast, probably you can find that. Um, and my website is functionalnutritionforkids.com. I'm actually going to give you the, uh, and if you do that, functionalnutritionforkids.com forward slash constipation toolkit, you will find the strategies that I talked about. Okay. About, awesome. Yeah. And that's, that's actually specifically for kids with Down syndrome. Okay. Wonderful. So, wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll definitely put the links in the show notes so that one people can find you and then they can also use that toolkit or they can just go to it themselves. But thank you so much for sharing your expertise and your knowledge. And it's, it's so great to have people on that have the actual knowledge of down syndrome. Like there's lots of experts out there on autism and so on, but they don't always have the knowledge of down syndrome and autism and, and dealing with our kids. So I I'm really appreciative of your time. And uh, thank you. I'm very happy to be on your podcast, Mary. Thanks. It was great meeting you. Thank you. You too. So Mary, one of the interesting things that I found in that was the discussion around changing the diet for one person, but expanding it for the whole family. Mm -hmm. Yes. Like I know it could be difficult for all families to go completely gluten-free and, and dairy-free, but if you're able to change the diet of your child, you know, they have improved, they can have improved behavior, more focus, you know, less disruptive behaviors. And all of that is a benefit to the family, not just to the child, but to the family as well. So, you know, I think it can be difficult. And like she said, like sometimes it can take even up to a year, but I think it's definitely worth exploring and, you know, I know that I'm going to be giving it a try for Ainsley, for sure. Well, it's convinced me to change part of my diet. That's great. So, and I look forward to hearing about it later. Yeah, we'll see how that turns out. Okay, Just, I'll hold you, you know, to it. Yeah, I know. Now you're going to send me emails every five minutes okay. about putting the <laughs> chips down, right? So. <laughs> okay, well, that was a fascinating episode. I'm really glad we had uh, uh, Dr. Vash as the guest. So... Uh, mm -hmm. are we doing something next week, week after? Yes. I mean, this week we were supposed to speak to Sarah from the DSRF, but just with some scheduling issues, but we will have her on hopefully in a couple of weeks and we've got some few other episodes in the works. So just stay tuned and, you know, fingers crossed. We'll also have a retreat episode if you're up for it, Ron. <laughs> yeah, we'll work on that one. Okay. Um, <laughs> And for everybody that's uh, having to send their kids back to school, good luck. Mm -hmm. Yes, uh, I know. I'm a little nervous about it too. So it's coming. Because yeah. <laughs> every year is different. Yeah, grade five. Here we come. I can't wow, believe grade it. Grade five already? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I'm starting to feel old here. Yeah. Tell me about it. <laughs> okay. So uh, why don't you take us out? 
Thanks for listening to the T21 Mom podcast. And as always, I would love to hear from you. Tell me your stories, what's going on in your life, what's important to you. You can find me at info at T21mom.com or also on Facebook. I'm also on Instagram and Twitter at Trisomy21Mama. And it would also really mean a lot if you would uh, subscribe to our podcast and leave a little review, and then we can give you a little shout out on some future episodes. But it also helps to make us more searchable for others in the Down syndrome community. Keep on loving on your rocking kiddos, and we will see you next time. See you, Mary. Bye, Ron. Bye.